Thank you for your giving, and uh, the Lord has been good to us. Uh, we are tracking. Today will end six months, and uh, by all indications, we will end the first six months of the year uh, ahead of budget, which is wonderful, and we say thank you. And uh, that is uh, just a testimony of what God's doing, uh, not only uh, financially, but then spiritually. God is moving, and He's helping us, and also in missions. And at the Gateway Church, on the last Sunday of each month, we highlight missions in a special way, uh, different uh, ways uh, throughout the year. And this morning, we have got a missionary guest that is a supreme missionary. Uh, him and his wife are serving uh, overseas in war-torn areas. And this morning, I want you to open up your hearts and your, your ears to listen to what Mike has to say. And to, then we want to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us together and so this morning, we want to give Mike, his uh, wife is sick this morning, not feeling well, so he's here on solo. Uh, but this morning, let's give him a Royal Gateway welcome this morning. Amen? I could wake up to that every morning. It usually doesn't go like that. <laughs> Thank you for that welcome. It's an honor to be here. Your pastor's a gift to the church. He and his family, I hope you know it. What a wonderful brother who gets to serve this wonderful local church. Thank you so much uh, for, for having Laura and I. Laura is in the Hotel 6, so you can pray for her. Uh, Laura and I have lived and worked in, in over 50 war and disaster zones. If you uh, hear of a major crisis going on in, uh, in maybe a, a war-torn country or a, a revolution like right now going on in Egypt or an earthquake or a typhoon, Laura and I are most of the time on our way or already there uh, coordinating local relief projects, feeding programs through the local church. And it all started for Laura and I when we quit our corporate career several years ago. Our desire was actually just to feed about 1,000 starving kids a day. Uh, that was the big dream, a 1,000 kids a day through the local church. And in a matter of eight years, it's amazing what God has done. Now, every single day, 150,000 children eat a hot meal uh, through the local church. And for that, we give God the glory. We live on the Arabian Peninsula, one of the most strategic places on earth for missions. It's the most unreached place on earth. 80 million people have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Laura and I are uh, the first missionaries in the country from which we travel all around the world in humanitarian aid. It's kind of also our cover, allowing us to live on the Arabian Peninsula, and we're involved in church planting there. Uh, people usually say, wherever I go, disaster follows. I assure you it's the other way around. 
my wife may disagree, but <laughs> lately it's also rumored in Michigan that wherever I go in the Middle East, if it's Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Syria, that wherever I go in the Middle East, revolutions begin. Um, well, you know if it's true if something happens in Michigan uh, by the end of today. <laughs> but this morning, allow me to tell you a rather exciting tale. It's the tale of the empty quarter. The empty quarter is breathtaking. But beware, it wants to take your life. After all, it is the largest sand desert in the world. It spills across several nations. Until about 300 A.D., caravans of the frankincense trade crossed through this wasteland. But for over 1,700 years now, the desert has had its way, and it has become virtually impassable. The empty quarter, or Rub al-Khali as it is called, is where Laura and I have made our home. It's empty of vegetation, but not void of some great stories, and I'm about to tell you just one. A rather exciting tale that takes place on the Arabian Peninsula, the nearby Middle East, and North Africa region. Since I'm writing this down while sitting on the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps I shall title the collection of stories, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. But I've just learned via Google that na that name seems to have been taken. And since it's been technically 1,080, and one might want to add here, 1,080 very, very long nights since we first landed here, I'll just go with tales from the empty quarter. The tale of the empty quarter is not set far from where Sinbad the sailor set off to experience his fantastic adventures. And like all good stories, our experiences in the past few years could tell you of beautiful romance, bitter betrayal, dramatic forgiveness, deep-rooted rivalries, and never-ending loyalties, shocking twists and deep disappointments, hope, hope and despair, courage and cowardliness, freedom and imprisonment, torture and interrogation, and at last deliverance by God's grace. Stories of sophisticated diplomacy and backroom bribing, occasional last resort begging on hands and knees. For the boys of Michigan in this room, there's a diverse cache of weaponry, fist fights, dagger wielding, car chases and the like. And for the starstruck ladies and gents in this room, there's a story of royalty. Unlike most tales, though, this one is not imagined. It's not exaggerated. It's true. And I might as well tell you right now, friends at Gateway, there is no end to this tale yet, but this will give you a rare chance to play a, a part in this unfolding story and the grand finale. But now the tale from the empty quarter. Wait. I've not yet decided that this is the adventure. I'm to tell you, perhaps a better one would be to tell you about the day I screamed like a girl when I came under gunfire. I'm afraid I'd rather bore you with a story when a perfectly good cup of coffee was ruined thanks to a car bomb detonating just a few feet away from us. It would be rather uncivil to send you to sleep with a story you've most likely already heard, like the one when we were welcomed to share the gospel in a North Africa refugee camp that was teeming with Al-Qaeda operatives. I might tell you of the day when I looked out of my window during a revolution just to realize that the people believed below me were shooting up in the air. I could tell you of the time when I ordered U.S. Special Forces in the Middle East to help me load my vehicle with supplies and insisted that they would pass, let me pass through their checkpoint. But then, 
well, then I would have to tell you about the rather exciting time when I almost convinced a few men guarding a fort that I, yours truly, was an Egyptian movie star. <laughs> There's always a good reason for these things, but I really have no time to explain today. Suppose I tell you of the day I was reunited with my friend I thought was dead. That is a beautiful story, and the end would show how faithful our great God is. But if I tell you the story, I'd have to tell you the whole adventure of how the week before we used a drug dealer's jet to gain access to the earthquake zone where I thought my friend had perished. A shorter adventure and quite as exciting was my attempt, with the help of my dear friend, to gain access to a, to a forbidden tower. We got up the tower. <laughs> Going down and getting out proved to be very exhausting and hazardous, but a handful of coins along with apologetic phrases and broken Arabic were exchanged, and I do believe the matter has been resolved, but Pastor Ben, if you ever visit said fort, never mention my name. Again, you might hear to choose about the day when our new friend heard the gospel for the first time in his life. The evening we were held by police. Then there were the long days working hard after the earthquake with little food to ourselves. There were the faces of joy, the tears, the fear, the gun, the rather long night and the sandstorm. The story of the six-hour flight on a propeller plane without a bathroom. There was the Christmas to remember. The events of New Year's Eve we'd rather forget, the Easter that didn't happen, the baptism, the funeral, the birth, the day when I was not able to say goodbye to my friend. Which of these adventures shall we choose this morning? Well, I tossed this morning in the hotel, and tales from the empty quarter actually have won, and this almost makes me wish the tale along the Red Sea had won because it involved some crooked Bedouins smuggling and diving, but for now, I will insist, and I will stick with the plan, tales from the empty quarter. Like every good story, this one must be told from the beginning. And so this morning, allow me to begin at the very beginning in the book of Acts, chapter 14. You can turn to the New Testament to Acts, chapter 14. Here in Acts 14, Luke, the historian and physician, gives us an insight into Paul's first missionary journey. My friends at Gateway, the comforts and the confines, the constitution of America tempt you and I to forget that the gospel is rarely preached without the messenger encountering danger and suffering. And so in Acts chapter 14, you and I will learn not only of the marvelous fruits of the gospel, but we'll also witness the grave battles, the distress, the hardship that are associated with carrying the message of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul and Barnabas are taking their lives into their own hands. But despite difficult conditions, including a mob wanting to lynch them, these faithful ministers of the gospel continue their ministry. They do not retreat. They do not hide. But as Paul describes in a letter he later writes in Thessalonians, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously. But as you know, with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. It's because of this commitment that Paul wrote about that you and I can read in Acts chapter 14 this short, simple, but very powerful verse. And there, and there they continued to preach 
the gospel. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This morning, perhaps you were visiting Gateway Church for the first time. Perhaps you don't really have a church background, and you'd want to ask me, well, Mike, what's this thing called the gospel? Well, this morning, I'm delighted to tell you the good news, that the gospel is, in fact, good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the Son of God, came to earth, died for our sins, for the bad things that we have done, And he died for our sins, rose again. Now Jesus is triumphant over all of his enemies, over all of death. And for you and I who believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation, but only eternal life and joy. That's the good news. The good news is available to you this morning if you just believe in Jesus. And that was the good news that Paul and Barnabas preached in a time of persecution. There they continued to preach the gospel. Despite common rejection and persecution, preaching the gospel also never comes without victories and joys. And as you continue to read on in Acts, you will learn how Luke reports that as the ministers continue to preach the gospel, the word of God spread, or the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Or Luke writes later, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Well, in the time of the New Testament, the word of God grew and spread widely, and it reached the Arabian Peninsula roughly 1,963 and a half years ago, 50 A.D. Within 15 years after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, churches began springing up all across the Arabian Peninsula. The earlier church was faithful to continue to preach the gospel there. The local inhabitants of Arabia widely welcomed the messengers, and many followed Jesus. Due to the strategic location on a sea trade route, Arabia became a hub for Christian activity. And it's so hard to think now as you think of countries like Saudi Arabia, but until 750 A.D., Arabia was a safe haven for persecuted Christians in the region. But today, today things are very different, and I wish I could show you something in the desert. It's been hidden for 1,700 years below the sands of Arabia. The desert has swallowed it. The people have forgotten about it. But here, near the birthplace of the prophet Muhammad and the home to Islam, archaeologists have unearthed and continue to discover new ruins of churches and monasteries. Across Arabia, if you just dig below the surface of the sand, you will discover church ruins. Well, Mike, what happened to these churches? Why are there just ruins hidden below the sand? Was it the prophet Muhammad? Did his followers destroy the churches on their way west as they began the Islamic revolution? And of course, most importantly, what's happened to all the Christians? Well, archaeologists have searched the ruins of the churches and have become certain that these ruins show no visible signs of destruction. There is no evidence of persecution. There is no evidence of Islamic armies destroying the churches. In fact, evidence in history points to only one culprit, the Christian. These buildings, in fact, were never destroyed. They were neglected. Neglected 1,700 years ago, persecution did not stop the gospel here. My friends, the bitter truth is the gospel stopped being preached. 
It seems that churches were uninhabited after disputes, disagreements broke out amongst different Christian groups. There were power struggles, tertiary, that's unimportant matters, began tearing the church apart from the inside. Proclaiming the gospel message was less important than winning a debate or insisting on an opinion, and so preachers became silent, their pulpits deserted, and churches abandoned. There, there, a thousand seven hundred years ago, the church did not continue to preach the gospel. They did not continue to preach the word. The desert swallowed the churches, buried them deep below the sands, and for a thousand seven hundred years, there's been only sand and silence. And today, the Arabian Peninsula is the most unreached place on earth and is the most hostile place on earth towards the gospel. Eighty million people live on the Arabian Peninsula. And in the country that Laura and I live, we know of only 18 national believers. In the country we just sent new missionaries last month in, the country next to us, we know of only one national believer. That is why Laura and I live where we live. That is why Laura and I do what we do, because we must begin to preach the gospel again on the Arabian Peninsula. We're experiencing incredible open doors, but to be quite honest, we're facing the harshest persecution. We're experiencing the fiercest opposition we've ever seen really in the history of the church. But we believe this is not a time for us as a church to retreat or to hide. But as we read in Acts, it's a time to continue to preach the gospel. The Empty Quarter, part three. 4,000 miles from the Arabian Peninsula. 200 miles from Tripoli. In Libya... In Libya, you never know what will happen. The Arab Spring has almost reached the capital city. Libya is in flames. Libya is a war zone. And we, well, we are driving in this war zone along the coast in a tiny Toyota Corolla. Somewhere above us, NATO Air Force drones are beginning to begin to bomb Gaddafi's army. Well, driving by the skeletons of burnt-out tanks and armored vehicles and military facilities, we and said tiny Toyota are hoping and praying that the person operating the deadly drone above us can see and read the tiny sign we have taped on the top of our vehicle that said, Unarmed humanitarian convoy. Friends, here in hindsight, here is a free lesson for you when you work in a war zone. In a war zone, never use Times New Roman font size 12 for a we are an unarmed sign. Go big or go home or your insurance rates will increase. (laughs) 150 miles from Tripoli. I watch as in two days, 25,000 people flee the violence in Libya. They mostly come on foot. Some have bags. Most have nothing. Many have been beaten and robbed. Some have experienced much, much worse. And their eyes, a refugee's eyes can say it all. Fear, hopelessness, hunger. What I will witness will really only be the beginning. Within two months, we will witness 750,000 people walking towards us to the refugee camps. 
We've purchased 10,000 blankets for the most vulnerable refugees fleeing the violence. We have set up a supply chain of food, in particular flour for bakeries to serve families under siege in the city of Misrata, where the regime is firing mortars into civilian neighborhoods day and night, week after week, targeting apartment buildings, hospitals, schools, and mosques. 90 miles from Tripoli, I sit with a young man who has just arrived in our refugee camp. His account of escape sounds similar to those of others, but it still sounds unimaginable. For him, the long nights when he was afraid, hungry, and cold were the hardest. When he receives his meal from me, he falls silent. He eats his rice as if it is his first, because it is his first meal in a week. I will not forget those days in Libya, 90 miles from Tripoli, because it was here in the city of Benghazi that I got dragged into a pro-America rally in the same city where just a few weeks later, during an anti-America rally, the first U.S. ambassador since 1988 would die in the line of duty. But I will not forget Libya for another reason. It was here in Libya during the war and now after war, that the gospel continued to be preached. During the war, we would meet a local family. And during this war, they were faithful to share the gospel, distribute Bibles, and to serve their neighbors who had been affected with, by the war with, with medical supplies as well as with food and water. But it did not take long for this pastor to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And while visiting the city, whenever we could lose the tale of secret agents following us, we would secretly meet up with the wife and children of the imprisoned brother. We brought them gifts, food, toys, money for rent, and medical attention. And we left the wife of the pastor with enough cash to escape the country with her children. And we also provided enough cash to stage an escape for her husband out of jail if he would ever be, uh, po if he ever would post bail. Because it was evident that pastors and missionaries would continue to be killed and imprisoned in Libya. But the faithful wife and her precious children decided to stay behind while the pastor, their family husband and father, was in prison. They lived amongst the very people in the neighborhood, amongst the people who arrested him. But upon his release on bail, the brother and his family did not escape the country. They decided to stay behind. They took all the money we had given them for them to relocate to another country, and they began helping their neighbors, the Muslim neighbors, the very ones who ratted him out to the authorities. There, they continued to preach the gospel. The imam, that's the leader of a mosque, watched in amazement and approached our Christian brother lading saying, why are you helping the ones who hurt you? Why are you helping the ones who beat you and tortured you? What kind of person are you? Well, there in the mosque, he continued to preach the gospel, explaining and answering the questions and giving the, the, the mosque leader a Bible and continued to share the gospel with them. Friends, despite persecution, 90 miles from Tripoli, there they continued to preach the gospel. Just a few days ago, I did receive word that our brother has yet again been arrested along with eight other pastors in Libya. They are being brutally tortured. We could see it in the photos that we received. But despite the sad news, this family and these brothers continue to preach the gospel. 
back to the Arabian Peninsula for another story. The tale of the two Arabian sheiks. There live, there live two sheiks. And I know what you're thinking, Mike. That sounds clumsy. There live two sheiks. But I can't say once upon a time there live two sheiks because these guys are very much alive. On the one hand, you have a good sheik. By the way, a, a sheik is a royal ruler or an Arabic uh, religious leader. We actually have first a bad sheik. He is irritatingly haughty. I find him annoying, and he's very, very evil. This king abuses his people. They are afraid of him and his family. But the other sheik, the other sheik is a good man, a kind man, and I'm sure you'll learn to like him at the end of this short tale. But the first thing you must learn about the Arabian Peninsula is this. Land in Arabia is considered holy. Islam calls the entire Arabian Peninsula to be sacred land. I'm a lawyer a bit, so Islamic law, I've looked it up, says in Book 45, number 45.5.18, it says this, two religions shall never coexist in the land of the Arabs. And so, to no one's surprise, the evil sheikh, the one we don't like, issued last year a fatwa. A fatwa is a religious legal pronouncement, and it stated this, it is necessary to destroy all the churches of the region and wipe all the Christians of the face of the map. Well, that was terrifying news to us all. Believe it or not, alone in our church building, over a thousand people gather every Friday morning to explore the claims of Christ. They come from over 120 different nationalities, mostly with a, from a Muslim background. But we worship every Friday morning. We begin to think, what will happen in the time of, of this call to persecute uh, churches and to destroy the buildings? What is our response supposed to be? Were we as a church to go underground, to become silent? And were people like missionaries, like Laura and I, were we just best off to go back to our home? countries. In situations where the gospel faces opposition, it's often very common to quote the words of Francis of Assisi, although historical evidence points out to the fact that he's never uttered these words. But people quote him as having said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. We understand there is certainly an element to this that could be wisdom, but allow me as a missionary to tell you, beware this could become treacherous advice. Just look at the story of the church ruins on the Arabian Peninsula to find out what happens when the church thinks that using words to preach the gospel is merely optional. Friends, the gospel must be preached with words. Paul asks in Romans this question, how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so on the Arabian Peninsula, we made a conscientious decision to continue to preach the gospel. And despite the call to wipe out churches here and to begin persecution, we have the privilege to continue to labor alongside of our dear brothers and sisters. Well, while the evil sheik was saying he wanted to destroy the churches, 
one of our brothers began working with the good sheik as a lawyer, consulting him on maritime law. We're really close to Iran. Iran and our country, they never really get along. Iran's always trying to threaten to cut off shipping routes. So our, our Christian brother from our church was, as a lawyer, consulting his highness. And through this, they built a very close working relationship. And our brother was very, very focused on not just living out the gospel, but sharing it with words. And so one day, he was in the ruler's court, and he just said, your highness, your highness, uh, we as Christians are meeting in a neighboring state, but in your state, there is really no safe place for us to meet. There is no good place for us to gather. Would you consider giving us land that we could buy to build a church? Sounds like a crazy request to make to a ruler who enforces Sharia law. But friends, what does God's word say? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. I think for some of you this morning, that's a word you need to receive as you perhaps watch the events going on in the United States and and you are, are buying into the fear that can happen sometimes when we watch politics. Friends, history is in the hand of a sovereign God. He directs history like a watercourse wherever he pleases. So one month after the evil sheik said it's time to wipe up all the churches, the good sheik called our friend and some other brothers into a meeting and said, I will not sell you land. I will give you free land to build a church. It is hard to believe, but what does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there they continue to preach the gospel. And so Laura and I are soon, within the year, returning to the Arabian Peninsula. One of the things we have to do is raise about, well, another quarter of a million dollars to begin building this gospel-preaching church. We'll also be building a training center, almost like a small Bible school. We'll be bringing in pastors from the Middle East, from Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, places where people cannot really get good theological training. And we will be hosting them uh, in our church to to equip them and teach them how to continue to preach the gospel. We'd ask that you would pray for us as Laura and I work in some of the hardest places. Just pray that Laura and I would continue to grow in grace. Our lives are in God's hands. We are confident that whatever happens, Jesus will build his church. We would ask you that you would pray that we would understand God's grace in a richer and stronger way. This morning in closing, allow me just to ask you, are, are you facing extreme difficulty in your life? Perhaps it is a financial challenge. Perhaps it's a relational problem. Perhaps it's a marriage on the rocks. Perhaps you're having difficult with, difficulty with raising your children. Perhaps you are just convicted that you're just not sharing the gospel as much as you should. Allow me to encourage you to continue to preach the gospel here in Michigan. Continue to share the gospel with others around you. But in your difficulty, in your challenges, allow me to give you a little tidbit that's really helped me. Preach the gospel also to yourself. Preach the gospel 
to yourself. Remind yourself of the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for your sins and has given you eternal hope that no matter what happens, you have hope in Jesus. Lord, I have done that, and we have been overwhelmed to see how God has been faithful as we preach the gospel not only to others but also to ourselves. The reality is this. When you preach the word, Christ is present. Christ became the word. So when you share the good news, Christ is present even in your darkest times. Take, for example, the time when I was overwhelmed by the suffering I had witnessed, experiencing stonings, killings, starvation, devastation, just a matter of a few weeks. God's word, Christ, reminded me in Psalm 71. Though you made me see many bitter things, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Take, for example, the time when a car bomb just exploded about 100 feet away from me. God's word, Christ, reminded me in Proverbs, don't be afraid of sudden terror, for the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep you from falling. Take, for example, the time when a government official pointed his gun in my face with his finger on the trigger. God's word, Christ, reminded me in Romans, who? Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Danger? Sword? No. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Take, for example, the time when Laura and I were stuck in a building during an earthquake. We couldn't get the door open. We could see the walls moving in, the ceiling collapse. But God's word reminded us, Christ reminded us in Psalm 46, we will not fear. Though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When we were held by corrupt police in prison on false charges, God's word reminded us in a prison cell in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. And lastly, when Al-Qaeda should have known our whereabouts, but God kept them consistently in the dark and us always one step ahead. Christ, through his word, reminded Laura and I through Jeremiah 20. My Lord is a feared warrior. Therefore, therefore my pursuers will stumble. They will not overcome me. Friends, regardless of your situation, regardless of where you're at in your relationship with Jesus, allow Christ through through his word, through the gospel, to minister to you in your circumstances. There's been times when Laura and I didn't even want to get out of bed, knowing that it just would be another hardship, another friend perishing, another friend being put into prison, another hardship, another challenge with the local police. We really did not know what to do. We would just not even sing. We would barely utter the words of the reformer Martin Luther. Allow me to close as you listen to these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all, earthly powers, new thanks to them. That word abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Regardless of your circumstance, Jesus says, with man, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. For you and I, we may strive for many things on this earth, but really there's only one compliment you and I should strive for on this earthly life, and that is for someone somewhere to say of you and I there. There they continued to preach the gospel. God bless you. Man. Heroes. Giving of their lives. Mike, I remember when I was a kid at Pahola Park where our kids are going in a couple weeks. I remember uh, making a commitment. Lord, no matter what, I'm going to serve you. And the challenge, it was a missions night. I remember they asked us, would you give your life for the sake of the gospel? And I was one of probably several hundred kids that, that evening that said yes. And uh, when you were talking there, especially at the end, kind of brought me back to those moments. And uh, you guys live there. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, but you're faithful, and the Lord's blessing what your efforts there, the team that God is putting together. Uh, what kind of favor is that, that land would be given free of charge to build a church? And now Mike and several other missionaries are itinerating, looking to raise support to make a long-lasting, forever imprint in the Arabian Peninsula. And we get an opportunity to partner with that. This morning, I'm going to encourage us to dig deep and to uh, bless Mike and Laura. Um, every penny that you give in this offering will go directly to their ministry uh, for support for this church building, uh, for their monthly support will we'll come later through uh, Faith Promise Giving. Uh, but this morning's offering will go 100% uh, directly to the ministry that, that God has uh, put on their hearts. And uh, I just want to challenge us that we are not... You're not exempt from uh, the opportunity to invest. This morning, it's our privilege to give and to invest. And I do believe it's an investment. It's a, uh, it's a tangible way for us to sow some seeds 
and believing God for a harvest. And uh, what, a, what an awesome privilege. And so this morning, uh, I want to encourage you uh, this morning to be able to give. And you can give uh, on the other line. You can put Clark's or you can put Arabian Peninsula. Uh, you can put uh, Missionary. Uh, this, this offering will be 100% for Mike and Laura Clark. And um, uh, we also want to mention, uh, as you leave today, uh, Mike has prayer cards. And he's looking for people to uh, partner with him uh, in support uh, to, for prayer. And these prayer cards are so important to the work that they're doing. And the reports that he will send um, are fantastic. I've been receiving those since you came last time, uh, back in 2007, 2008. And, uh, and they're, they're just incredible prayer points uh, that you would be receiving on a quarterly basis, sometimes more often than that. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you that if that's your heart, to pray with, with them and to partner and to track with them as the church, we are going to do the same, um, that, that you guys uh, would be able to, to do just that. Amen. Ushers, if you could come at this point, um, we're going to receive the offering. And then I want to challenge us uh, with the word that Mike presented to preach the word to be a voice box for Christ, to share the gospel right where you are. And that's how I want to close with, with a prayer uh, combined and asking the Lord to help us in that way. But let's uh, take our gifts, let's pray, put them on our hearts, and let's, let's just ask God to multiply these gifts. Lord, we just honor you, we lift you up. So thankful for the work that Mike and Laura have been able to really plow in, in very dry ground, literally. But Lord, you are a good God. You pour out blessings that we can't even imagine. Lord, we do stand on your word that through you, all things are possible. Nothing is too difficult. And God, I pray, Lord, that even though Mike what he's facing seems impossible to raise a quarter of a million dollars in a year and to raise an additional $5,000 in monthly support to, to, to be effective missionaries in a hard, hard area. Lord, nothing is impossible. And Lord, as we invest today, I pray that these seeds, Lord, would bear much fruit. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. God bless you as you give this morning.
you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to, to grab it, and I want everyone to stand. Um, and I want you, we just finished a series, Mike, you didn't know this, on the Word of God, highlighting the Word of God. We read through the entire New Testament as a church. It was pretty cool. Um, and the challenge this morning is not only to devour God's Word for ourselves, because there's power in that, and we need that, don't we? There's life for us each and every day. It's our daily bread. But it's also the Word of God for those that are lost. And as you hold God's Word, um, I just want you to put it on your heart and uh, that it would penetrate your heart to the point that you would be compelled to share it, to preach the Word. You know, a lot of times we think of pastors or missionaries, oh, they're the ones. But that's not the case at all. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are called out to share God's word. It's our responsibility. And so as we close this morning with a prayer of benediction, I pray that these words would sink deep in our hearts and they would bubble up outside of us that we would make a difference in someone's life this week, this season of our lives, this year, that indeed his word, God's word, would not return void in our lives. Amen? Lord, I just pray that as we sink our teeth into your word on a daily basis, Lord, that it would become life for us like it has been for Mike and Laura. But not only will it be life for us, but it will pour out. And Lord, we would open our mouths to share your word, to preach the word, the good news, the gospel. God, I pray that it would, you would compel us. Lord, that it would keep us up at night to the place where we couldn't Imagine not sharing with coworkers and family and relatives. And God, I just pray for a revival of sharing your word. Lord, that it would make a difference. The seed of your word being planted all across the lakeshore and all across the entire world. Lord, I thank you for missionaries like Mike and Laura. Lord, that are giving of themselves, putting their lives literally on the line. Help them, Lord, to continue to bear good fruit. And Lord, bless them in these next several months, Lord, as they travel, sharing their story. God, I pray for an anointing on them. Lord, bless them. And Lord, today as we go, we know that you'll go before us, behind us, and all around us. And we're thankful for that. We pray it all in Jesus' name.